seat, please. Now, I'm going to give you a heads up if uh, you may be wanting to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, because I'm going to quiz you on something there later, and you'll want to be there as soon as that quiz comes up. Uh, Henry Cloud is a best-selling author and a licensed counselor, and a friend of his asked him once for advice. And the friend said, I've got my, my daughter is dating this guy, and he's a wonderful guy, and I'm anticipating a question that's going to come soon. Can I have her hand in marriage? And so he asked Henry Cloud, what do you advise I ask for or I think about as I, as I decide whether I'm going to give my daughter's hand in marriage? And Henry Cloud said, I would ask for two things from the young man when he asks. So, okay, what's that? He said, number one, I'm go- I would ask him for a credit report. Number two, I would ask him for his most recent tax returns. The guy looked at him. He said, well, I'm, I'm really not that concerned so much about the finances. I just want to make sure he's a good guy. And he said, one of the best ways you know if somebody is a good guy is you look at their previous track record. The tax returns is not about seeing how much money he made. It's about asking, does he do responsible things? Does he do little things that can be overlooked like filing his taxes? And his credit report isn't about, isn't about what he does with his finances, but his credit report tells you when he makes a promise to do something, does he fulfill his promises? Now, I don't know if you agree whether that's a, an appropriate way or the right way to decide whether your daughter should marry someone. But I think all of us would re- agree that, that you make your decisions on the basis of people's credibility on their track record, on the things that they have done in the past. But what I find to be interesting is that in the New Testament time, they had a very different thing that they looked at for a person's credibility, for their ability to lead, for their ability to perform. And so what I want us to do is to look at a little bit of research that a guy named uh, Jerome Nairi has done. And Jerome Nairi wanted to answer the question, what do people in the first century evaluate on the basis of the credibility of their leaders? And so he had this, uh, what I thought was a good idea. He looked at this style of a genre of writing. It's called enconium. And, and that's whenever people would write praises to people or, or, or speeches that would praise someone. And he took four different writers from 4 BC to 1 uh, AD, and he looked at those who had taught people, how do you write a speech where you really praise someone? And of those four writers, there was only two things that overlapped that everyone said, you've got to talk about this. And the first thing that every single one of those writers talked about was you need to mention their ethnic affiliation. What people group do they belong to? What was their clan or tribal affiliation? Who are their ancestors? Tell us about their direct family. So if you want to know if somebody's going to do a good job as a leader, you want to look at their family, their ethnic origin. Now for us, I think the closest point of origin may be horse racing. Uh, Do you know that there is this horse called Stormcat that that at, at its peak, they would pay stud fees of half a million dollars. Why did they do that? Because of Stormcat's heritage. And they would look at and they would find the value that's based on parents, heritage, lineage. There's a writer named Quintilian. He's one of the writers that Nairi looked at who said, persons are generally regarded as having some resemblance to their parents and ancestors. So if you want to know what somebody's going to look like or turn out like as a leader, where are you going to look? At their ancestors. The second thing that all of the writers included as something that you need to make sure you talk about when you're going to praise someone as a leader is you need to look at their geography. What is their nation, city, or state? Where do they come from? What is their home locale? And what is their country of origin? 
The assumption is a person is going to be successful on the basis of the kind of a community that they were raised in. You want to look at their zip code, and that's going to give you an idea of what kind of a person they're going to be. For us, it might be much like certain, certain schools will produce certain types of people. Certain jobs, you might want to graduate from an Ivy League school in order to be able to do that sort of job. That's why you see people like Nathaniel, when he asked about Jesus in John 1, 46, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's, he's saying that there are certain uh, communities or towns or villages that produce certain types of people. And Nazareth, Nathaniel thought, is the kind of a place that doesn't produce anyone who's going to do an awful lot of good. Or John says in John 4, 9, that the Jews do not share things in common with the Samaritans. And that's because if things come out of Samaria, Samaria, they think that those things are now therefore not as valuable. And so credibility is established on the basis of two things. Your genealogy and your geography. In other words, in the first century, if you asked a dignified person for permission to marry their daughter, they're not going to ask for your credit report. They're not going to ask for your tax returns. They're going to ask you about your genealogy. Tell me about your family. Tell me about your heritage. Tell me about your parents. And they're going to ask about your geography. Where do you come from? Who are the kinds of people that you were around growing up? Now, I hope you've realized by now that our sermon this morning is not about how to decide whether somebody should or shouldn't marry your daughter. But what we're trying to do is to establish the kinds of things that people would be expecting in the first century for people who would lead them, for people who are worthy of praise, for people who are dignified. And so as you look at Matthew chapter one, there is a lot of things that are listed there. Anybody, um, and and this is not a rhetorical question, what is listed a lot of in Matthew chapter one? There are a bunch of names. Names because those names are helping answer the question, who is Jesus on the basis of where does he come from? People want to know about his genealogy. Does he come from a family that is known and trusted and respected? And so Matthew is going to help satisfy their curiosity. Now, if you turn over to Matthew chapter two, this one's a little bit harder. And so I won't make you guess because you might embarrass yourself. But what you're going to notice in Matthew chapter two is the names of places. Matthew chapter one, names of people. Matthew chapter two is the names of places. It talks about Jesus who is, was born in Bethlehem of Judea. The family then escapes to Egypt, and then at the right time, the angel of the Lord leads them into the district of Galilee to a town called Nazareth. Matthew chapter 2 focuses on geography, and it's not coincidental. It is very intentional that we have the genealogy of Jesus, we have the geography of Jesus as a way to show and to prove. See, what Matthew is doing is he is writing to those who need additional evidence to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. And when you are trying to convince someone of something, you need to, number one, know their objections. What would be the reasons why some people would say he can't be the Messiah? And then number two, what do you want to do? You want to then address each and every one of those objections. Matthew is very intentional and logical about helping make the case with those first century readers that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. That's why Matthew starts his gospel in a way that most of us consider to be terribly boring. Because we are not his original audience. His original audience is asking the question, where does he come from? I want to know about his lineage. Does Jesus have the right genealogy? Is he from the right region? So Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 begins in this way. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of God, the son of Abraham. If you've ever read the Bible, 
from Genesis through the end, and you read it from, from book after book after book, there is a, a, a feeling that you feel when you get to Malachi into the very last chapter and you finally turn to Matthew and you're like, finally, I'm in the New Testament. Because we are New Testament Christians. We believe in the value of the New Testament. We, 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 we structure our church after the New Testament. And so we, we so highly hold the New Testament. When we get to the New Testament, there's the sense of excitement and anticipation. But the reality is for us to be New Testament Christians, you know what we also have to be? We have to be very familiar with our Old Testaments. Because imagine if you picked up one of those little slim New Testament only Bibles and you'd, you'd never heard the story of, of, of Jesus, or maybe you've heard of Jesus, but you haven't heard a lot of it, and you open up and you start in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. What questions do you have when you hear this text read? An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You think, well, I've, I've heard of Jesus, um, but he's, he's the Messiah. Well, what's the Messiah? I don't know. I've never heard of that. And that says that he is the son of David. So, well, who is David? I, I don't know anything about David. And he's the son of Abraham. Well, I don't know anything. So you're going to realize pretty quickly when you start in the New Testament, it doesn't make sense unless you understand what? The Old Testament. You, you realize you've picked up a book and you're reading in the middle of a book. That this is not the beginning. And so Matthew begins with the background. And I want to answer some of those questions to make sure that we're all on the same page when we get to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Who is Abraham? And why does he matter? God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He makes several. In fact, I just want to look at the very last part of that promise, which is in Genesis chapter 12, in the last part of verse 3. In you, so in Abraham, all of the families on earth shall be blessed. Or Genesis twenty-two eighteen. And by your offspring shall the nations of the earth gain blessing for themselves because you have obeyed my voice. See, what God did was he made a promise with Abraham and that promise was both specific and universal. He's saying, I'm making a promise, Abraham, with you and with your descendants. But the promise, the ultimate blessing of this promise is not supposed to just benefit you and your family. I'm going to use you in order to be a blessing to who? All people. And so God makes a promise to Abraham. That's a promise that affects the whole world. That all the people will be blessed through Abraham. Well, then who is David and why does he matter? David is one of the most well-known kings in the nation of Israel. And as he is the king to whom God made a promise about the enduring nature of his throne. Speaking to David's son Solomon, this is what God says to Solomon in 1 Kings 9.5. I promised your father David saying, there shall not fail you a successor on the throne of Israel. So it's called a perpetual promise that there is to always be a descendant of David that is sitting on the throne. And then there's this expectation that David's throne will continue. So then we can now answer the question, well, then who is the Messiah or what is the Messiah? The Messiah is this chosen or anointed one. When people thought about this future descendant who would sit on the throne of David forever, they thought about this one person to whom they called the Messiah. This is the person who would fulfill all the promises that were made to Abraham. This is the person who would fulfill all the promises that were made to David. And what Matthew is saying at the very beginning of his gospel is this Jesus Christ is the one who has fulfilled all these expectations. So Matthew 1 is what we can call an apologetic text. It's not apologizing for things, but it is explaining to doubters about how Jesus can be the 
Messiah. Now, when it comes to the topic of Messiah today, I think there's a little bit of misconception that's a little bit difficult for us. We think that everybody had a checklist in their back pocket that they had all agreed on about what the Messiah would look like, where he would come from, and what he would do. And all people had to do was to put this checklist beside whoever claimed to be Messiah, and they would know. There was disagreement about what the checklist was, about exactly who this Messiah would be, what would characterize him. And so that's why Matthew has to address this question about, is Jesus the Messiah? Because he has to convince people that this checklist that Jesus actually satisfies and fulfills is indeed the one they were looking for. I'll give you just one example out of John chapter 7, verse 41. It says, others said, this is the Messiah. But someone asked, surely the Messiah does not, does not come from Galilee, does he? Does not the scripture say that the Messiah is descended from David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where he lived? So the question is this. Do you just need to be born in Bethlehem to be the Messiah? Or do you have to be from, raised in Bethlehem? And there's a huge difference between somebody being born somewhere and someone being from somewhere. In fact, that same discussion came up in the 1978 congressional race between George Bush and Jim Reese. Jim Reese was a Republican who painted George Bush as an Easterner. Because he went to high school out east, he was born out east, he went to college out east, and he's saying, George Bush isn't even a Texan. And when you're running for a congressional seat in Texas, guess what's real important? You got to be seen as a Texan. And so do you know what Jim Reese did four days before the congressional election? He released George Bush's birth certificate that said he was born out east because clearly he's not from around here. And that's the same discussion that's happening here. Is Jesus really from Bethlehem because he's born there? Because we know that he wasn't raised in Bethlehem. And people are wondering, does Jesus satisfy the requirements to be Messiah. Notice what John the Baptist asked in Matthew eleven three of Jesus. Are you the one who is to come or are we to wait for another? He's wondering, I don't, I don't know what, what checklist is right. Is Jesus the one? And so the burden of proof for Matthew is to prove and to show that Jesus is in fact, this long expected Messiah. And he does that in chapter one by the, this flurry of names and titles that he uses to refer to Jesus. Jesus is then expected to be the fulfillment of all things. We see the name Jesus mentioned four times in Matthew chapter one. The Hebrew name, of course, is Joshua, and Joshua means Jehovah saves. God saves. God delivers. And, and so what we, what we recognize is that by giving Jesus the name uh, uh, of Joshua, um, now the Greek name of, of Jesus is this recognition that, that there is salvation that is to come. And notice what Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 says, She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins. He's also called these three terms we've seen already, the Messiah, mentioned four times, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and then a new title that is given in 123, he is Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And by reviewing these names, by later introducing the geography, Matthew is writing to convince anybody who has doubts that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. But here's the key. I want to make sure that you see and that you realize what Matthew is trying to do in Matthew 1 and 2 is to make a logical, historical, biblical argument for the truth of Jesus Christ. Sometimes today, we don't think we need to make logical or historical claims for Jesus. In fact, I was reading of one person who is now a Christian who was talking about his original faith journey. And he said, faith in Jesus was difficult for me, especially for someone with a logical mind like mine. 
And he's insinuating that, that, that for those of us who are logical, we might find it more difficult to believe the stories about Jesus. But what Matthew does when he writes his gospel is he doesn't say, you know, you got to just have this good feeling about Jesus. Matthew doesn't just simply say, well, you know, Jesus is a, is, a, is a feeling of faith that you can't validate. What does Matthew do? Matthew grabs the historical books and the historical records and he's going to say, I'm going to show you from history. Believing in Jesus is a logical, historical thing for all of us. That same author who, who spoke of his faith, he said, whether you believe or don't believe, your position is based on faith. And yes, there is faith involved, but there is logic and history involved. Jesus is claimed to be a historical figure. And so the history book should help to show us the truth about Jesus. So Matthew offers an apologetic text, trying to convince people that Jesus is the Messiah. And in that way, there's a couple of ironic things that Matthew does that initially it seems like he's working against the argument he's trying to make. And the first is found in Matthew chapter 1, verse 16. And so if we had read all of this, we're going to see Matthew has gone to painstaking efforts to show the, the genealogical, the biological connection between, uh, between Joseph and all of his descendants. But then in 1.16, he says, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. Every other man who has appeared in the line has appeared in relationship to their child. But Joseph appears in relationship to whom? To Mary. And it is Mary to whom there is a connection with Jesus. And, and even we have 39 times coming up to this, we've had this, this sense of fathering has been mentioned 39 times as an active verb. This person fathered, this person fathered, this person fathered, this person. And now we find it in the passive verb of whom Mary was born. And so he's been going through this huge argument to say, Jesus is a descendant of Abraham and a descendant of David, and then near the end, he seems to drop the ball because he says, oh, and by the way, there's something precarious about the relationship between Jesus and Joseph. And why is that? Matthew makes it very clear why he does not make a biological connection between Jesus and Joseph. He explains it two places. First, Matthew 1.18. Now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way when his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph. But before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So we realize Joseph is not Jesus' biological father. He's been birthed by the Holy Spirit. Or Matthew chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is born, fathered by the Holy Spirit. And then you say, whoa, 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 you just a minute ago told me, Craig, this is a whole logical faith and a historical faith. And then you're going to tell me somebody can be born without there really being a dad in the picture. And that's where there is this aspect in this element of faith. See, Colossians 2.9 says of Jesus, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily because he was fathered by the Holy Spirit. Now you might say that's not possible. And as Christians, we have one answer to that. In God, all things are possible. See, there's going to be a lot of things that Jesus will do that you'll say, well, that's not possible. Walk on water, that's not possible. Tell the storm to stop, that's not possible. Raise from the dead, that's not possible. Unless this one possibility is in fact possible. That he was born through the Holy Spirit 
by a mother who was a virgin. And so Matthew makes the case that Jesus is born not of our normal human origin, but through the Holy Spirit. There's a second unusual or unexpected way that Matthew shares the genealogy. He lists through the genealogy four females. He talks about Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And, and it's unusual. It's not, it's not impossible. There are other texts where, where women are brought into the genealogy, but it is unusual to mention women. And it seems like if Matthew were going to mention some women, would we expect him to mention women like, like Rachel and Leah and Sarah? And yet there's these four women. And why would Matthew do that? What's important to him? What's he trying to communicate? For me, the answer begins in Matthew 1.21, when he says, She will bear a son. And you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is the beginning of what's going to be an ongoing conversation throughout the entire New Testament, which is who are his people. There are some people who will say his people are those who are children of Abraham, to which everyone will agree. But then the question will become, how do you know you are a child of Abraham? And that's going to be a conversation that's going to happen over and over again in the New Testament, the way that Paul will answer that question in Galatians 3, 6 through 9, just as Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So you see that those who believe are descendants of Abraham as the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith declared the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the Gentiles shall be blessed in you. For this reason, those who believe are blessed with Abraham who believed. What these four women represent in Matthew chapter 1 are people who were Gentiles. We're going to get to the, we'll explain Uriah in a moment. But are Gentiles who actually shamed the Jewish people because they displayed more faith than even the people of God. And for that reason, they are incorporated into the family tree. Let, let's just look at some of these, each of these names and show how each of them show, as a Gentile, they have more faith than a Jewish counterpart. Rahab. Rahab, we know, was a Canaanite. Um, remember, when, when the spies were told to go take the land, they're like, there's no way we can't do it. This is impossible. It's not going to happen. But when they go to Rahab, what does Rahab say? Rahab says, I know that the Lord has given you, into, given you this land. It's a statement and a confession of faith that supersedes the wilderness generation. And so a Canaanite is more faithful than the Jews. And because of that, she finds herself in the family line of Jesus. What about Tamar? Tamar is also a Canaanite. And, and there's lots of confusing aspects and elements about her story in Genesis 38. You're welcome to read that. But I want to look at the statement that Judah, and Judah is an important person in Jewish history, but here's what Judah says of Tamar. Maybe. She is more in the right than I a Jewish person looking at Gentiles saying she's more righteous than I am. What about Ruth? Ruth is a Moabite. Um, so she is a Canaanite. She is not ethnically Jewish. And while you have this whole generation of the judges, Vance was telling us this morning about the judges, see, during all those unfaithfulness, what does Ruth do? Ruth says, where you go, I will go. Um, your God will be my God. That's a statement of faith incorporates her in the family, and not by, not by genealogy, but simply by her expression of faith. 
And the fourth, this is what is confusing to some. Well, what about the Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah? I actually think what is being contrasted here is not Bathsheba, but is Uriah himself. Uriah, who we know is a Hittite. So he is, he is not of the people of God. And if you compare his faithfulness to the faithfulness of David, who was more faithful? Remember, David brought him back and said, hey, go, ha, go spend the night with your wife. And Uriah says, hey, I'm not going to do that. Not while my troops are out there on the field. And David's problem is that Uriah is too righteous, even more righteous than David. So who are the people who are his people to whom Jesus will save from his sins. Matthew is showing us from the genealogy of Jesus, the people have always been brought into the people of God has not just been those who are ethnically Jews, but those who by faith have chosen to follow God and been obedient to him. See, when you look at the lineage of Jesus, you find there is effort made to show Jesus heritage and his lineage as a child of Abraham and a child of David. But his first prerogative will be to make all people realize and recognize that the basis of salvation will not be on ethnicity, but it will be simply on the basis of faith. See, there's an irony. You might say, well, I biologically, I'm not a child of Abraham. Biologically, genealogically, I, I can't trace myself to David. So is there any hope for me? And the hope is in this. That Jesus has said that he will save his people. Those who believe. Those who confess. Those who submit themselves in the waters of baptism. Those are the people who can say, Abraham is my father. Not by virtue of physical genealogy. But by virtue of sharing in the faith of Abraham. And so my prayer is that each of us will make that confession of faith. And realize that by that confession of faith, we will be considered his people. Who will, who will ourselves be saved from our sins. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord, Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And as you enter into the world, this person who is baptized into Christ, you realize that you go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If you want to respond in any way this morning, uh, myself and some of the elders will be back there. Um, be happy to talk about where you are in your life of faith in your walk with God. Um, so if you have any kind of needs, we invite you to come to the back while we stand and sing this next song together.